Imagine this scenario for a moment. A guy charters a boat, but he's never been on a boat before in his life. He goes out by himself. He doesn't tell anybody where he's going. He takes no provisions. He has no radio, no life jackets. He, um, and he goes out knowing that he is sailing right into a, an unbelievably strong storm. And he gets out in the middle of it, and the storm rocks the boat in such a way that it capsizes, and he ends up sinking in the water. And to top it off, this isn't the first time he's done this. In fact, it's 12, 15, 20 times. I don't know who the guy is that keeps sending him out in the boat that owns the boat, but that's a whole other story to think about. But he goes out in the boat and he keeps doing the same thing over and over again. And there's something in us that wants to say, you know what, you keep doing that, you get what you get, you know. You get what you deserve. We kind of view the things that people do that way. And when I think about this psalm, Psalm 130, there's something of that image that comes to my mind of a guy out in a boat and he he doesn't have a clue what he's doing. He is totally at fault and here he is crying out to be rescued. You see, there are some psalms that are where, where the psalmist cries out for help because he or she is being oppressed. There are some psalms that where people cry out because of injustice, because the weight of the world is on them, because people have mistreated them. But this is not one of those psalms. This is a psalm written by someone who is sinking under the weight, the guilt, the shame of their own sin. When you begin, the psalm begins, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Hear my voice and I cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? This is about sin. And this is about someone who is sinking in the depths of despair and shame and guilt because of sin and crying out for help. Now, I think one of the reasons that we have a tendency to look at people who, have, who may have done these kinds of things over and over again with a certain amount of, of uh, disgust is because we don't think seriously about our own sin. See, we read the psalm like this, and most of us probably aren't thinking that we have lived with this enormous weight of guilt and shame on us. Because that kind of feeling, that's related to the really bad sins. That's related to the stuff that might get you kicked out of the church. These are the big things. Well, those things, sure, no problem. You feel that shame and guilt and and all of that, like you're sinking in the depths. We get that. But most of us probably don't think that way about our own sins. And the moment that those thoughts come into my mind, I automatically think of a couple of passages of Scripture. One of them is in Luke 18, where Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that go to the temple to pray. And the, the Pharisee kneels down and he says, Oh God, thank you that I'm not such a horrible person like this tax collector over here. 
Thank you, God, that I don't take advantage of people like he does. Thank you, God, that I'm not, the, that I'm not the, the swine of the earth like this guy is. Thank you, oh God, that I'm a good person. And the tax collector's over there on his face with his nose buried in the floor saying, God, he's right. That's who I am. I'm horrible. I've done all these terrible things. I am a wretched sinner. And Jesus says, it's the tax collector, not the Pharisee, that goes away right with God. See, one of the things that we tend to do in rationalizing our sin is we compare ourselves to other people. Of course, we don't compare ourselves to people who are better than us. We compare ourselves to people who are worse than us, right? I don't do what they do. I'm not struggling with that sin, so I must be okay. And we rationalize all kinds of ways. And and I'm also reminded of a couple of things that Paul says. One is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he he says, I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. And just to make sure we don't miss it, in Galatians chapter 5, he says the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. And we kind of think, let's just stop right there because, yeah, those are bad things and we don't do those things. But he doesn't stop there. He says, well, let's not forget hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, Drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. See, we want to rationalize our sins. We want to say, well, I'm not that bad. Sin is sin. And we ought to feel guilty about our sin. There ought to be a sense of of shame about our sin. And so often, one of the reasons that, that we don't recognize how much we need God is because... We don't really want to admit that we're that bad. That we're really struggling with that much. Until we find, come across a list like this. But the psalmist recognizes that he is in deep trouble. He's crying out, Lord, I've blown it. I am in serious trouble here and I need help. We often find that when we... I think when we get ourselves into these positions, whatever they may be, our first solution is to try to get ourselves out of it. We work a little harder. We just, we just set our noses through the grindstone a little more. If we could just, you know, we just do, I'm going to do better next time. And and there's good in that. But that would then mean that the psalm would read, out of the depths, I climbed out myself. Out of the depths, I got myself up to the surface and I tipped the boat back over and crawled back up on the deck. Out of the depths, I can handle it. And the psalmist says, out of the depths, I cry out to you, O Lord, because there is no way in the world I can handle it. The only hope I have is if you come and rescue me. And you and I need that mindset We need this mindset that that acknowledges that without God's help, we are dead in the water. Without God's help, we can do nothing. We'll never get anywhere. Without God's help, we are sinking like a stone and nothing can change it without God's help. 
And the psalmist can say God, he can cry out to God and know with confidence that God hears him because he knows the character of God. In verse 4, he says, with you there is forgiveness. Verse 7, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. With the Lord is unfailing love. With him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. He cries out to God because God is the one being who loves him enough to save him. It's always intrigued me that when God has the opportunity to describe himself, in the Old Testament particularly, he often says, I want you to know who I am. I am the God of patience and forgiveness and loving kindness. Now, it doesn't mean that God isn't just. It doesn't mean that God isn't truth. It doesn't mean that God doesn't take sin seriously because he does. But when God describes himself, it usually includes something of those words about his nature and his character as loving and forgiving and compassionate and full of grace and mercy. For centuries, people have tried to reconcile the image of God in the Old Testament with the image of Jesus in the New Testament. You go back to Marcion way back in the early century of the church, who couldn't reconcile it. And so he said, the old, God of the Old Testament is, is some other being. And, of course, when you throw out the Old Testament, then you start having to throw out a lot of the New Testament as well. And there were ongoing debates about how to figure that out, and we're not going to solve that today. But the reality is, this is the same God. What we see in, in Jesus is who God is. What we see in in, in God is who Jesus is. And while we see someone who holds us accountable for our sin, we also see a God who is loving and gracious and merciful. It is what separates him from all the other gods. It It is true holiness in God that he doesn't respond in spite, in spite of our sin. But he responds with grace and mercy and loving kindness. And the other gods of the nations around Israel, those gods are happy to punish their people and get their pound of flesh. And the only way that they will ever exude forgiveness is if they are appeased enough. You sacrifice enough, you do enough, you, you accomplish enough, you give them enough. And God says, you could never give me enough. Because it's in God's very nature to love and to forgive and to be full of grace. God loves to forgive. I have this image in my mind of God just chomping at the bit to forgive and to show us how deeply he loves us. And we often wrestle with that image of God. And it's for the very, this very reason, who God is, that we can trust him. We can trust God. We can trust the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. You know, the, sometimes it's hard to reconcile those stories in the Old Testament. You know, we, we struggle with some of those images 
There was, I read a story of a little boy years ago who was sitting in Sunday school class and, you know, they were teaching him through the year all these Old Testament stories. It, it made me think, one of these days I'm going to preach a series of sermons, stories we probably shouldn't tell our children in, in Sunday school. But, you know, he's reading all these stories, they're telling him all these stories. You can see the wheels going in his mind of trying to figure that out, trying to reconcile it. And all of a sudden the light goes on and he says, oh, I get it. All of that was before God was a Christian. You know, it's, it's, sometimes it's hard. And this, but here is the psalmist in the middle of the Old Testament life saying, God is good and merciful and we can trust him. Verses five and six, he says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits in his word. I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. That repeated phrase is, is something you, you see often in Hebrew poetry. And it, it's emphasizing this passion that he's trying to communicate. You, you think, picture a, a sentry on duty at night walking around the walls of the city. Everything is dark. And when it's dark... Anxiety rises and level of fear rises and you hear every noise and every creak and, and everything going on and you're continually looking around and, and, and there is this sense of, of insecurity. I remember times when, when uh, especially when the, the kids were younger, that uh, sometimes when I'd be working at a camp for a week or so, Cindy and the boys would go to her parents for a while, and I'd usually have a night at home by myself. And, you know, in that darkness of the night, you hear everything, stuff that I'm sure were going, was going on all the rest of the time. But in that darkness, by yourself, you know, the anxiety level rises. What's weird is that a few times Cindy went to a retreat or something, it was just me and the boys, and, you know, they might have been five, six years old. I felt more secure with them there, like they were going to save me or something. I don't know. But there is that sense of just that darkness brings a sense of fear. And you look out and you're waiting for that first light of dawn. And something about that first light of dawn brings relief. And you think of a sentry in those ancient days guarding the wall in the middle of the night. And every few minutes gazing up at the horizon looking for that first light of the sun. And he can't wait is passionate about it. And the psalmist says, this is the best I can do to try to communicate the depth in my soul of how much I want God. Every part of my being yearns for God. I trust him that much. I believe, I'm convinced that despite the sins I've committed, despite the guilt and the shame that I feel, God is the answer. And I trust him to be the answer. I know it. It reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. You know, the son, prodigal son goes off, he takes his father's inheritance, he embarrasses his father, he squanders everything he has, and he's sitting there in the middle of a pigsty thinking, if I could just eat what the pigs are eating. And in that moment, it strikes him, you know what, I'd be better off to be a slave of my father. I'm better off to go back and face the music with my dad. Take what he'll give me. And he goes back to him. 
And there is this sense of trusting God that draws us back to God. But here's the interesting thing about the parable of the, of the prodigal son. The son doesn't run to the father. The father runs to the son. This is the God in whom we place our trust. It doesn't matter what sins we've committed if we think they're too big for God to forgive or too small to mess with. Our loving Heavenly Father is inviting us to come to Him and find grace and forgiveness and freedom. This is a song of ascents like a number of the psalms before it. It's one of the songs that the the pilgrims sing as they make their way into Jerusalem. And it strikes me as kind of an odd song for them to sing as they prepare for worship. You would think it would be all about hallelujah, praise the Lord, this is glorious, we're going to the temple, because that's how we tend to think of worship that way. And this is a psalm of, oh man, out of the depths I cry out to God, this is bad. But that's just how it begins. As the psalm moves forward, there is a psalm of hope. Because he knows that in the presence of God and with God's people, there is hope. And I suspect that there are times where we feel unworthy to come to worship. We look around and we think, if people knew the struggles that I've had this week, they wouldn't want me in worship. If people knew the kind of stuff that I'm wrestling with, they would say, you really shouldn't be here today. If people understood all the things that were going on in my life, they would say, this is really not the place for you. When in reality, this is exactly the place for us. Because every one of us deals with stuff. Every one of us is wrestling with sin of one kind or another because none of us are perfect. And we're all on the journey in one place or another. And this is exactly the place where we come. That's why when we talked often about metaphors for the church, one of the most profound metaphors for the church is a hospital. The church is not a country club. It's a hospital. Jesus says, I've come for people who recognize and who acknowledge I'm messed up. I'm struggling. I'm sick. And only God can help me. That's exactly what the church is about. And we come together and we encourage each other. We pray together. We sing together. We we engage the word together. And God uses that as a means of helping us and restoring us and loving us. The church is not for people who are perfect. Now, does that mean that we don't worry about sinning? Not at all. Romans 6, we read earlier, Paul's very clear. We don't talk about the love and the grace of God as as sort of an out for us to do whatever we want to do. That's not what the gospel's about. The problem that I find for a lot of us is that we're thinking of the gospel as perfection when the scriptures talk to us about the gospel as trust. 
We are called to live holy lives, but holy lives doesn't mean I I see if I can make myself perfect. Holy living is how much can I trust God to make me the person he's calling me to be. It's like the difference in the way that people often approach uh, uh, entering a new course, a new class. You know, it doesn't matter if high school, college, graduate school. Some people enter in the first day of the, of the class and, in, and their mindset is, I'm here to get an A. And the goal of me being in this class is to get an A. Other people come to the course and they're... And their goal is to learn as much as possible about whatever's being taught. To engage the subject matter with every part of their being. And to walk out of the class understanding the concepts of of the class far more than they did when they started. Now I suspect that people who take the second approach often end up with A's. But not always. But I'm pretty certain that people whose goal is to get an A rarely end up walking out truly having engaged the course. Because it's simply about, I just want to make sure I cram enough to do well on the test. I just want to make sure that that I can get this paper done and move on to the next thing. And often our mindset about God is, I can just make myself perfect, then everything will be okay. When all the while God is, I'm sure, smiling, because not one of us can make ourselves perfect. He's just calling us not to be perfect, but to trust him, so that he can make us holy. And there's risk in that. There's risk in that kind of life. There's a safety, a feeling of safety at least, in saying, I'm just going to work as hard as I can to be perfect. There's risk involved with trust. Always is. See, we aren't aren't called. The answer isn't, the answer to being out in the water and having our boat tip over and us crying out from the deep, the solution to that is not sitting on our boat docked at the shore. Who buys a boat just to leave it at the dock? I mean, what's the point? The point of a boat is to get out into the water. But the minute you go out into the water, there are all kinds of things that may happen. Storms can arise. You can fall out of the boat. You can get hurt. Things can, all kinds of stuff can take place that might bring danger. But that's what life, that's real life. Sitting by the dock is not real life. God isn't calling us to be safe. He's calling us to a life of risk-taking trust. And that will mean sometimes we capsize. And sometimes we fall out of the boat and we struggle. But the grace of God is bigger and greater. And again, it, does, it is not an excuse to do whatever we want. It is simply being real about life and crying out to God for his help that then makes us more and more like him. 
as people who are known by the Spirit of Christ. You know, when when your boat's just docked at the shore, it's as though we have this mindset of, I only sin about 10%, so I only need about 10% of God's grace. When the reality is, we're humans, we're imperfect, we're, inf- we're, we're fallible and broken, and we need all of God's grace. And as God's grace gets into us, then we start looking more like Christ. Through the years, Brennan Manning has been an author, a speaker who has impacted a lot of people's lives. He's written a number of books, Ruthless Trust, Office Child, Ragamuffin Gospel, among others. He has spoken to thousands of people through the years, and, and uh, many of you, I would guess, have probably read some of his writings. And, and, and you know his theme of, of grace and, and even of, of honesty. He died in April. In the last book he wrote, he titled uh, All His Grace, and the subtitle was A Ragamuffin's Memoir. And he, he says in this book that it is the most, he is the most brutally honest he's been in any of his writings, any place he's spoken. And he is. And his, his story is one of triumph and tragedy. And triumph again and tragedy again. His story is, is, is his struggle as a, as a Catholic priest who then gives up his, his credentials to get married. Years later, ends up getting divorced. And much of his life story focuses around his struggle being an alcoholic. And in fact, he himself says it is alcoholism that eventually cut short his life. Philip Yancey, who ironically wrote What's So Amazing About Grace, writes in the foreword of this memoir, All is Grace, some words that from the moment I read them, they've haunted me. And they've haunted me partly because I, I, I know they're true and partly because I wrestle to really engage them being true. He says this. As you read this memoir, you may be tempted as I was to think, oh, what might have been if, if Brennan hadn't given in to drink? And then he says, I want to encourage you to to." reframe that thought and and to ask it maybe like this. What might have been if Brennan had never discovered grace? And my question for us is have we discovered grace? We all know we wrestle with sin. And we all know that God has more for us than where we are. 
But in the midst of that, have we truly discovered grace? Grace that can be honest about our sin and grace that's rooted in our loving, forgiving Heavenly Father. Please pray with me. In this brief moment of silence, cry out to God in whatever way you may need to and know that he hears you. Father, with the psalmist, we cry out to you. We acknowledge our sin. And we acknowledge your grace, your loving kindness, your mercy. Father, give us a new glimpse, a new experience of your grace today that we might be more and more like Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.